I'm Scott Abraham from ABC7 in Washington, D.C. You know who it is. Travis Thomas Experience. This is Eric Edholm of Yahoo Sports. This is Mitch Tischler. This is Al Galdi, and you're listening to The Big Douglas Show. All right, this is The Big Douglas Show. I'm Big Douglas. That's the rapper Big Pooh. We hit the trifecta today with <laughs> Big Woes. Here we go. <laughs> big men all around. Boys, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm chilling. You know what's so interesting, um, Doug, is that um, you call me Big Woes, which is actually the p- correct ethnic way to say my name. But publicly, I'm known as Big Waz, which is the Yankee way to say it. So it's dope <laughs> that you just instinctually said it the way my ancestors meant it to be said, man. So shouts to you for that. Well, I appreciate it. I also was going to get you to tell me if I'm right. It must be Lombre, right? It can't yes, be it right. is. <laughs> I'm assuming it's French in nature. Yes, it is. Exactly. You just you just hit the head, nail on the head, <laughs> brother. Give me all the props. I <laughs> it is Lombre. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how you say it. I was, uh, I was watching the hip-hop undercover uh, or uncovered oh, on man. FX. I'm two and a half in. I don't know if you guys have been watching it. I've, oh, yeah. I've, I've watched it. Stuff, yes, I have. I feel like I know a lot. That's what I grew up on. There's a lot of stuff in there that I did not know about. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So, you know, the funny thing about Haitian Jack, who has been like this ominous sort of notorious figure for a while, you know, if you're a hip hop nerd or if you, you know, especially if you if in NYC, um, where I'm from originally, his name rings so many bells. But I had watched like a really lo-fi sort of documentary on Amazon, Amazon Prime, that this dude had done about Haitian Jack. He got him to, you know, sit down for an interview. The dude flew to DR. And basically his conclusion was like, yo, this dude's a sociopath. He's a liar. He's manipulative. He's a bad dude. Then you watch Hip Hop Uncovered. I'm like, yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, same. Also, nobody on the planet curses more than Dr. Dre. Listen, the, the funniest I know a part lot of people that curse myself included, nobody curses more than Dr. Dre. I mean, if he's breathing. The funniest part about the Dre thing, um, I was around Dre uh during the making of Compton. And mm. uh so I met the director, Rashidi Harper. Um oh, nice. And the funniest thing is uh, his name had uh, under his name was professional winner. And <laughs> You know, everybody else had what they did. His said right. professional winner. And I just remember him screaming that in the studio, like the whole time I was in there, professional winners. So when I saw it, I, I burst out laughing. And, and, and my wife was like, why are you laughing so hard? And I was like, he has professional winner up under his name. <laughs> like that, like that, that's his title. That's what he believes his title is. So, but he does curse Y'all a lot. watched The Defiant Ones on HBO? Yeah, I watched it. I saw some of it. a while ago. That was a while yeah, ago. That was, was definitely Dre and, and Jimmy propaganda, but I still enjoyed it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I still was able to enjoy it for what it was, but it was absolutely like um, Dre and, and Jimmy IV mythologizing themselves, which respect. I would probably do the same thing if given the opportunity. Yes, when, uh, when Apple gives you a billion dollars, you get to make, uh, you know, things that look real good about yourself and become a professional winner. Exactly. Definitely a big professional winner. Big professional. Well, I want to ask you about um, your approach to 
writing um, in the NBA uh, about the NBA? Like what, what inspired your approach to, to, to the style you took the path you took? Man, you know, what's interesting uh, when I, when I talked Dan Kaufman, who's the head of NBA content at the athletic and I talked to Sergio Rodriguez, who's like, you know, the, um, our biggest editor on the NBA side about allowing me to write for the site. Um, I, I basically pitched him on the idea that like, look, you know, obviously I'm a hoops head. I played basketball my whole life. Um, but also like I'm a hip hop head, you know, meaning I listen to the same music as these dudes. I follow the same girls on Instagram, right? Like I follow the same, you know, clothing accounts. I've like, I am so connected to, um, NBA culture, you know, as it pertains to the greater culture at large. Um, and that's basically the slant that I'm always going to take, right? Like I come from a working class background, so that's always going to be part of what informs my worldview. Um, and, and that's, that's what it is being connected to all of those things that I just mentioned, where I'm from, the things that I find to be interesting and connecting it to the NBA. That's, that's always what I'm going to do. Right. Like, you know, I, I tried to explain to my editor when we wrote, like we, he wanted me to write something about Dr. Martin Luther King for the King holiday. And I was like, look, man, um, I'm a former union guy. Um, I'm, basically I'm a socialist, like for lack of a better word. Um, I never see people write about Martin Luther King's sort of socialist tendencies and ideas. That's what I'm going to write about. If you ask me to write for Martin Luther King day, right? Like I'm going to talk about the poor people's March. I'm going to talk about uniting the working poor across all races, creeds, religions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just me. Like I'm always going to tie my own worldview and upbringing to any work that I do, it, whether it be on the NBA side, whether it be some of the political work that I do for my own company, whatever I do, I'm bringing my background, my upbringing into it. Nice. You went out, Doug. <laughs> you went out. We can't hear you. Yeah, I think his mic got got um. Yeah, it's, it's going in and out. I think it bounced in and it bounced out. See where we get mic up. There you go. I just got the mic to, without the headset today. Y'all can hear me now. Yep. Yeah. Technology. Yes, it gets the best of us all the time. Well, as I was going to ask you about, I think you got something coming up with David Aldridge, and yeah. uh, it must be pretty cool. There are a lot of great and unique voices at the Athletic. David has got to be right up there at the top. I mean, you know, what can I say about David Aldridge? The guy's literally in the Hall of Fame, right? Um, he's been he's been at this basically as long as I've been born. He's I think he started in the NBA meet covering the NBA professionally in like 88. I was born in 87, you know, and so the amount of things that he's seen, um, the relationships he's built over the course of the years, um, just and, you know, most importantly, while working with him, honestly, and getting to know him better and better and knowing that he does it from a place of being a principled person, being fair, not killing anybody for an agenda, being honest, you know, like not basically not being a shady cat. There's a lot of shadiness that goes down in NBA media, as I'm sure you guys might imagine. Um, D.A. being the type of cat to ascend to where he has having the principles that he has is very inspiring for somebody like me who's just getting started, right? To let me know that like, 
I don't have to go outside of myself in order to do quality work that people are going to notice and appreciate. You know, I can stay true to the to the things that I hold dear to myself and what my people put into me, um, even in this work, right? Even in this work, in this industry, where let's face it, there's a lot of ambitious people. A lot of people are trying to get ahead. A lot of people are trying to, you know, trying to do what they got to do, right? And, and, you know, and God bless them. Like, do what you do. Um, DA is awesome just working with him, just the way he inspires me to be not just put in the work to make my work as great and as a as a, a the highest quality that it could possibly be but also i don't have to sacrifice my own morals or principles sell my soul you know to do great work in this game nice uh i want to switch i'm gonna pivot a little bit ask you i know you cover a lot of uh, uh fashion trends in the nba mm -hmm. and 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 um can you talk about the change from when David Stern implemented yeah. the, the the dress code to how we got to where we are now with some of the wild outfits we've been of seeing? <laughs> so, you know, I'm talking to the rapper Big Pooh, so I already know that you were very connected to the Fab Five, right? Absolutely. Which is essentially the basketball culture coming out as not only are we basketball, but we're hip-hop. They were the first to make it that, right? Like they were so blatantly that. They were so blatantly hip hop in their embodiment of how they approached the game. Like they were the first. And so, you know, first, we, before we talk about the NBA dress code and all of those things, we kind of got to go back to the 70s where the, the perception of the NBA was that of it's this black as hell league and it's overrun with drugs. That was the the sort of perception in mass media of what the NBA product was. So from the very beginning, the NBA has always been battling a perception problem. And that perception being, it's a black league, right? Anything black in America is considered to be not good, not pristine, not pure, right? So they've been battling this from the 70s. So then in comes Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, lifts the NBA out of that and takes them to the mainstream. Like these guys, like it's hard to overstate how incredibly popular Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were as individuals, as stars. And they lifted the league on the backs of that. And of course, behind them, you have Michael Jordan who takes it to another level, right? And Jordan carries that torch basically up until 1998 when he retires. And then he hands it off to who? To Chris Webber, to Allen Iverson specifically, right? To Rasheed Wallace, to all of these, to even Shaq who dropped the rap album. Jordan had it and Jordan was not hip hop. Jordan was never hip hop. If you watch The Last Dance, he was he was bumping Kenny Lattimore. Kenny Lattimore. <laughs> you understand? So Mike was not hip hop. Mike, when he finally left, he handed it over to the hip hop generation. And that was AI. That was AI starting a global revolution of hairstyles where there's brothers in Africa wearing cornrows because of Allen Iverson, right? Like these guys became the cultural ambassadors. And I think David Stern, again, because he did take over the league in 1980 as commissioner, he came and he was co he was like the um, deputy commissioner or he was the NBA's lawyer before that in the seventies and he dealt with when they had to try to get TV contracts when he, so he, because of those battle scars, David Stern was always very conscious of 
the perception of the NBA. And you see Allen obviously with the chains and the tats and the cornrows, and you see what's happening when, when we got Rashid and we got all of these other different cats, Spreewell, you name it, that generation of cats. Stern was like, man, listen, we still trying to sell this game to these crackers. So as much as, as, much as y'all might say, oh, this is racially insensitive or whatever, when we grow the pie of money that we can make for the league, that's in the player's best interest. That's how David Stern could justify what we could all accept is a racist dress code. This idea that a chain makes you look bad. This idea that a certain, you know, size clothes makes you look bad. It's, it's inherently racist, right? But David Stern justified it. But like, look, when we grow the money pie, it's the players whose money, whose pockets are growing as well with it. So that's what we're trying to do here. And so, you know, and so that's what you saw. Now, of course, and we got to mention this too, the malice at the palace. Again, bunch of black dudes running into the stands, whooping the shit out of some white fans, paying customers. Perception-wise, that's, that's, that's horrible for the NBA. So Stern, again, coming from the battle scars of the 70s, was like, yo, we got to come down pretty heavy-handed here, and we're going to put a dress code in. So that's when they did the, you got to wear a suit jacket or whatever. You can't do this. And they did that to clean it up. My man, Marcus Canby came out and said, oh, I need a special stipend to buy, to buy suits, <laughs> even though he made $8 million that year. Um, you know, and that's when we saw that. And again, and again, Rapper Big Pool, you know this. At that same time, 06 and 07, um, we were coming out of, gangsterism being the dominant mode in hip-hop right where we had we basically had that 50 and kanye moment and you saw now where basically we have blue collar working class rappers like a kanye like a lupe fiasco etc cetera, etc cetera, um coming out and them becoming the dominant forces in rap right like a kid cuddy or even if even if you don't want to call him a rapper like these kinds of people, Drake flows out of this, Wale flows out of this, J. Cole flows out of this. We start to leave the sort of gangster rap, whatever aesthetic that was definitely obviously being portrayed by AI. AI and 50 Cent basically dressed exactly the same. We started to come out of that. And so when Kanye and them become sort of the dominant forces in, in hip hop, that's when you saw the NBA players now are dressing like Kanye. They're not dressing like 50 anymore. They're not dressing like AI. They're dressing like Kanye and the Cuddies, et cetera, et cetera. So as you've seen rap evolve in its style and self-presentation, so has the NBA because the two things are so intertwined, right? Like James Harden is avoiding training camp to go to little baby's birthday party. You understand? Like it's literally one and the same. So when you see what people are wearing, it's no different than what the Migos are wearing. They're, that's all they're emulating, you know? And so when you see guys looking crazy, you know, just look at little Uzi Vert, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's where, that's where they're getting it from. And that ruined it for me. Cause I'm a six, six, 300 pound man. When everybody <laughs> was wearing the three uh, XTs, that was a good Perfect. thing for me. Yes. Titty <laughs> jeans don't work for me at all. And so now everything I got short short shirts, tight pants. So I'm stuck. 
No, no, no. See, this is the thing, too. I think there's always going to be a happy medium. I think there are people out there who you you don't you, like because, again, for you to leave your house dressing like Quavo at six, six, 300 pounds like that, that just would never make any sense to anybody. And even two chains, who's a huge guy, even he it takes a special type of person to be that size to do that. I think there's definitely, you know, a happy medium between trying to look your best and just dressing, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a diva, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's gotta be some type of happy medium that we could all reach. It's just, it's, it's wild to me how the, uh, the walk-in, the NBA arena walk-in has turned into the new runway. Uh, yeah. Just, just some of the wild stuff you see. It's almost like uh, guys know they're going to be on camera. So they just go, go find the wildest stuff they can pick out to uh, to get people talking, have yes, social media it's, going it's crazy. It's that, but I think, you know, what people need to understand too, and, and I've talked about this previously in my work before, is like, you know, so Bron and D-Wade, they realized with the Miami Heat that like they were getting unprecedented amount of attention like eyes on them after they started that Heatles project. And they were like, you know what? Because more people are paying attention to what we do, um, we got to professionalize our appearance. They, that's when they brought in people like Rachel Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, professional image consultants. They literally professionalized the process. Like there was nobody picking out AI's clothes for him, right? Like he was just like, all right, I'm, getting the fat farming in Nietzsche. I'm icing out the Cuban, the chain, and we're going out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm going to flood the Roly, yeah. And I'm doing that. Um, LeBron and D-Wade, they were the first to professionalize the process. And I believe, and because I, I haven't asked them personally, that they did that because they were getting so much freaking attention. Everything they did became news, became media. And so they were like, you know what? We're getting the pros involved. And then I say all of that to say, that's when you started seeing them get high-end deals. Like no NBA player had ever had an Audemars Piquet deal or a Richard Mill deal or um, uh, LeBron got this luxury freaking luggage deal, Rimawa or something. I forget what it's called. He got a luxury luggage deal. Um, NBA guys were never getting these deals before they sort of started entertaining these things. And those people from high-end luxury brands was like, all right, we'll give you a check to do this. You get this much attention. You look good doing it. We'll give you a check to do it. So I think a lot of it is you seeing guys are doing that so that they create um, a sort of space and a lane for themselves outside of the game where people would be like, yo, I want to put this guy in my clothes. I want to put him in my ad campaign. I want to, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of them are, you know, trying to actually strategically line their pockets for, you know, financial ways outside of the game of basketball. I also saw something, I forget who said this now, but they basically said for fashion designers, NBA players are basically walking hangers anyway. Super 100%. wide shoulders, yep. real tall. I mean, it's yep. what you want to design clothes for. So it's an interesting fit that way. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, Ford, it's crazy that you, that you said that, Doug, because I think when you watch TV, like I'll take somebody like PJ Tucker or Marcus Smart, right? Like these guys on TV feel like really thick, muscular guys. 
If you see them in person, they right. are slim. Mm-hmm. And those are the thick, muscular NBA players. Right. So that's not to tell you about a Ja Morant or Shea Gilgis Alexander, who are just like straight up real thin cats. I was going to suggest that Jordan Fours are the best. No. Those, those don't listen. Listen, I'm a three, four. You got the Mars Black guy. Fours. The Cool Gray Fours came yeah. out recently. I, I, I can't. I, I got to get the Mars Black that. I can't dispute that. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the Fours. I, I like, I. Man, it's it's something about that shoe. I I I you be hard pressed to find a um you know a detractor from me, but most most people I think would say it's the Jordan Eleven because that's the one that sort of broke the mold. In like a lot of them, a lot of those shoes broke the mold. Like the threes with the elephant print broke the mold. But like that patent leather, there's just something iconic about it. Everybody remembers the first time they saw those sneakers and just being completely shocked and awed by them. They broke the mold, but them Jordans are some of the most uncomfortable shoes to wear. And this the fours, yeah, they're not very comfortable. <laughs> they're not very comfortable. But you look good. <laughs> uh, well, what do you think about um, Nike stewardship of of the jerseys? Like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of these mm. new colors and these these. You know, every time I watch the Houston Rockets now, I think I'm watching the Grizzlies. Like, it's just the colors are off. It's it's all over the place. You know, it's this funny thing. Um, everybody lampooned Adidas for the job that they were doing because they had the contract bef- right before Nike. Right. Um, and it was like, oh, finally, somebody with some type of design sense is getting these things and they're going to kill it. And as you've seen, and most people would agree with you, Pooh, like they haven't killed it. And I think what that speaks to um, is how hard it is to get this right. Um, and, and, and guess what? The best jerseys... I think we all agree are just the classics, are the Celtics, are the Lakers, mm-hmm. are the Knicks, are the just classic jerseys from yesteryear, are the old school Sixers, right? Not the stuff with the bells and whistles. Just give me the white with mm-hmm. the blue and the red accents that, and keep it. it pushing. That's all I need. I, you know, so you see that it's hard to actually innovate and, you know, keep it dope. I think with the... Um, the Oh, sorry. I think I think with the um with the South Beach stuff, um, I, I think they, they've killed it with their alternatives or whatever. Um, but it's hard for me to see anybody else who's actually killed it with the alternative. And it sucks for Adidas because it took Nike failing that for people to be like, well, maybe this is actually really hard. <laughs> I, I, I think they thought it was gonna be like watching the Oregon football team when they come out with all the different no, 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 crazy no. <laughs> colorways, and it's 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 so nothing like that. <laughs> no. It's, it's a lot it's a lot harder to it's a lot harder to execute this and especially in basketball it's just different like football you know they get to do the different jersey they get to mess around with the pant colorway they get to mess around with the socks they get to mess around with the helmet they get to mess around with so many different things um in the NBA it's like all right you either get this jersey and shorts right or you got nothing you know um and and I just think it's hard I think it's difficult to come up with new jersey designs that that people are going to appreciate. The other thing that has changed is the the shoes that don't match color. Wear any shoe you yeah. want now. That, that was yeah. not the way it worked when I was growing up. You know, I I was that that's something that's a rule that they actually got rid of 
um, within the last two to three years. This is a very recent development. Right. And I remember when they first, when it first was announced that they're not going to put the restrictions on it, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. This is going to be amazing. And honestly, it's been the opposite. I've, I tweeted that one day and people called me like a boomer or get off my lawn. <laughs> and I was like, yo, um, it, it, it doesn't look, it, it looks weird when somebody's wearing a neon green sneaker with black socks and a white and blue jersey. Like that doesn't, that just, that, that, that just clashes. It's like wearing an Adidas track shoot, suit with uh, Nike <laughs> shoes on. Drive, drive me insane. Drive me absolutely insane. Don't, don't put a Nike hat on with uh, Reebok shoes, please. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been known to wear an Adidas track suit, <laughs> put a Nike shoe in my day. Oh no! <laughs> oh, I call that the, I call that the European clash. That's you see a lot of that in Europe. Well, you know how I justify it, Doug. I'll say you know back in the days we used to rock Tommy with polo. You know, like not everything you didn't do polo down. Like I mean, obviously the low head. Shouts to the low heads in New York City. Um, shouts to my man Dallas Penn. Um, but you know, the low heads obviously wore low all the time, but like, you know, in, in New York, you'd be like, all right, I got a Tommy jacket. I got a Nordica hat. I got a polo a button up underneath. I'm, I'm fresh. That, that would be my sort of thinking. Just, you know, just, just rocking the fresh brands together. <laughs> well, as I know, PJ Tucker is a big shoe head and shoe collector, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe the biggest in the NBA. Who, who's some of the other guys that are big, big shoe guys? I mean, it's kind of hard to say, to be honest, because P.J. Tucker, I've been watching him since he was at University of Texas, and he was doing this there, too. And, you know, I got actually got to sit down with him and talk to him about his love of sneakers and where it all started and where it all came from. And, and, and you know, P.J. Tucker explains it comes from a genuine place like this is I've, I've been about this since I was six, seven. You know, I came out the womb. I was born in 85. My mom had me in some ones. You know, um, P.J. Tucker talks about it from a genuine place. But like, honestly, you know, sneaker culture has become so synonymous with flex culture that it's no surprise that a bunch of young millionaires are now calling themselves sneakerheads in the NBA. Um, but to answer your question, I think Jordan Clarkson is legitimately one of the ones. He's one of the guys that really is about it. And, and, and really understands it um, from a deeply personal level. I think Jordan Clarkson is probably the only other person in the NBA who I would say I really respect what they do on the sneaker tip. The rest of these cats, let's be honest, man. These guys are just, you know, they can't afford to. A lot of them have sneaker contracts with Nike, so they're getting this stuff anyway. Um, with Nike and Jordan, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard for me with NBA players to take them seriously as sneakerheads when, you know, again, I, I come from a culture where on my block, I'm talking about when I was eight years old, we were talking about, yo, what sneakers we wanted to get. Oh, what sneakers we could beg our parents to, to get us. Or like, it was, you know, it was crazy. It's hard for me to believe, honestly, that most of these cats gave a fuck about sneakers when they were that young. Um, it's it's become so dominant in the culture. Uh, and you seen the freaking Nike executive lady just got fired because oh her son. I was going to ask you about that. What's the fallout going to be on that thing? That's man. That's that could turn wild, very right? bad for the company, um, because there isn't a there is a perception out there that the little guy is getting completely squeezed out and stomped on in sneaker culture, right? Like this idea that 
no normal person ever gets to purchase these sneakers at what Nike deems to be the suggested retail price. And then you see, you see one of the price gouges, one of the biggest price gouges in sneakers. His mom is an executive, a vice president at the company. This kid has warehouses full of sneakers that he's going to resell at double, triple, quadruple, five times the retail price to civilians. Um, and it's, and you know, and that perception has been growing for a while and it's kind of, it's scary. I feel bad, uh, man, this could get bad. Cause you know, if I'm Nike, I'd be very worried because we saw it with the GameStop thing where a bunch of people on the internet decided that they're going to go against the company in this, in that case, it was against the hedge fund and they're going to try to do their best to sabotage them. I think, you know, a lot of people can get together online and be really mad at Nike. And obviously it's a bit different in the sense that Nike has delivered so many memories and nostalgia and cool experiences for people. So it's going to be harder for people to turn against them, but yo man, it's not hard for a mob to form around some type of grievance online and weaponize that mass grievance against a corporation. I like, if I was Nike, I'd be trying to figure out how to fix this with the, the sort of the rank and file community members of people who live and die with these products, right? Like not the people who are, who are enriching themselves on the back of it, but the rank and file people who love this stuff so much, um, they should be trying to get back into their good graces, man, because the way it is right now, and again, like I'm, I don't want to get on my, you know, my socialist high horse and my capitalist um, critique, but the way it is right now is literally just capitalism run amok, right? Like this guy, this kid was able to buy $140,000 worth of sneakers on his mother's credit card because he knew he was going to be able to profit on it on the other side by upcharging it to, again, to normal people, people who aren't sneaker resellers, right? Mind you, his mother is a millionaire, <laughs> okay and he's doing this for clout and of course there's money to be made in it and it's just like to what end can we continue to do this you know um again like every person has no idea how much money is in their shoes yeah no 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 no. you can't and it's hard because it's hard to even it's hard to sort of explain to somebody like and you know even before this there was the 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 Complex wrote a beautifully well-sourced and very well-reported piece about the Trophy Room Ones, which are the um, special Air Jordan sneakers. It's all good that Michael Jordan's son put out. Um, and it was reported that this guy, it was a very limited run of sneakers, 12,000 pairs. And it was reported that he was selling what they call backdooring before the sneakers ever reached market. He was selling those sneakers at $1,000 a pop at a thousand at a time <laughs> to certain reseller shops, et cetera, et cetera. And if you go online right now, I think those sneakers are probably 2,500 or something ridiculous like that. Shoot. That probably costs $20 to make in China. You know, um, it's, and, right. and the, you know, and the thing that I want people to, cause I don't want to get on my preachy shit right now. Um, but what I want people to understand about any given sneaker no sneaker can be worth $2,500 if Nike is putting out sneakers every week, every day. And not just Nike. Adidas is putting, like, they're just sneakers. They're 
Like sneakers are coming. No one sneaker can be worth that. If tens of millions of sneakers are being produced every single day, you can just decide that your converses make you look just as good as those Jordan ones. You can, you can, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what are you listening to right now? Man, you know, as you, as I'm sure you, you know, a lot, like the game has kind of been put on pause. Not a lot of new music has come out and I am, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a pop rap fan. Like I like Travis Scott. I like J Cole. I like Drake. I like Kendrick. I like all of these artists and none of them put out music this year. Right. Um, and so honestly, what I've been listening to is a lot of um, Young Thug. So much fun. That was like probably the last new shit that dropped that I was a huge fan of. Cause I, you know, I've been a fan of Young Thug basically since Danny Glover. Like um, he's one of the last rap artists I feel like who came out and you felt like this is something original. This is something I've never seen before. This is a feeling I've never had before listening to a rapper. And so I'll always love Thug for being so out there. And now he's got like 20 different clones in the game, which is fine, right? That's sort of how the game is. Like the concept of biting, <laughs> that's been exercised from Completely. the hip hop lexicon, right? Like that, as a concept, it doesn't even exist anymore. In fact, you know, the labels are like, how fast can we bite that guy? You know, um, Nas tells the story if he couldn't get a deal because they said he sounded like G-Rap. <laughs> these days they would be trying to make seven G raps, right? Like they'd be trying to sign seven of them to see who's 27. Stuck. Yeah, 27 exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I, when I, when I'm like, you know, in the crib drinking wine, you know, hanging out, I probably listen to thug the most recently because nothing new has really come out. I, I loved, I, no, that's a lot. I liked Benny's album. Um, the, the hit boy joint. I love that album. Um, I loved, uh, Freddie, Freddie Gibbs, his last album. I, I started listening to that again last weekend because I just felt like being in a grimy mood. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's that's basically what I've been listening to. I haven't been listening to a lot of different different crazy things lately. My wife and I got to see Nas at the Kennedy Center with the National Symphony Orchestra one year. Greatest concert I've ever been to. That sounds amazing. Never. I've I, I seen it on video. I the mix of people at the Kennedy Center that night to see Nas was worth the price of admission just just to see all the different rando people. But Big Pooh, I would love to know who you're bumping right now, because obviously, you know, I think people have a lot of love and respect for what you guys did as a group. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's obvious, evident from your work that you guys have impeccable taste, which means that you were influenced by the best of the best. <laughs> so I would love to know what, you know, what you find yourself gravitating towards these days, especially in a, you know, as we're in a stasis moment in music. Um, well, I've always kind of looked back more than look forward when I listen to music. Um, and that has a lot to do with me, whether I'm working on something or not. But um, lately, I've really been listening to, I've re been revisiting um, a guy, Saba, Saba Pivot out of okay. Chicago, uh, his joint Care For Me from 2018. So I've been going back, revisiting that. Um, and then the classics, man, the Cubes, the the Outcasts, the EPMDs, the uh, instrumental albums. Uh, I never used to be an instrumental album fan, but uh, I got into this kid from, I think he's from the UK. His name is Romdeful. 
Uh, and, and he sings a little bit, but it's, it's a lot of instrumentals and they, they're quick listens. But uh, so that and then the new Mad Lib instrumental. So that's kind of mm. where where I've been with yeah, it. Yeah, I, I knew you was going to sneak some backpacker stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, got, it, it, come, it come with the territory, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm all over the place. And, and, and you know, I, I want to thank I, I got to thank Fonte for that because he really opened, you mm. know, my ears to a lot of different music. We used to uh, host a radio show in college. Oh, and, wow. And on that radio show, we didn't play any hip hop. We didn't play anything that you could hear on the radio. And so I got introduced to Beck in, in different groups, uh, Four mm. Heroes, uh, Zero mm. Seven. Mm. And, and we just used to play all those different things. So now that, that that's kind of in into my to my uh, my diet, my musical diet now. So I kind of go all over the board these days. I love that. Yeah. You got any more questions, Doug? No, I thought you were getting ready to wrap it up for us. Oh, well, I got I'm... you. Yeah, I got you. Well, definitely want to thank you for coming. Thank you for your time. Um, you know, let the people know where they can find you and what you're working on. Um, yeah, my 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 um my my handle on every single social media platform is B-I-G-W-O-S. So you can follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, Snap stereo whatever you name it um it's b-i-g-w-o-s on every single platform um you know i put out a nba style roundup every week um just to you know because these guys take it so seriously right like you can tell they put so much effort into what they're doing so i just thought it would be a fun way to document it and offer the people a little bit of insight into what they're doing um out there when you see them strutting down the catwalk in the tunnel um Another 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 thing that I'm working uh, that I work on. Obviously, I do a podcast with David Aldridge called Hoops Adjacent, and it's on the Athletic NBA Show. So check that out wherever you get podcasts, man. Make sure you listen to that. And if you want to become politically radicalized um, for my own media company, my art independent media, I don't I don't do the <laughs> I don't do the communism talk on the Athletics airwaves, um, but. <laughs> But um, um, I do a podcast called The Woke Bros with my brother Nando Vila, where we just talk about politics with a leftward slant, right? Like it's politics, politic, political discourse centered around the issues that affect working people, normal people, everyday people. Gotcha. And that's on the, and that's on the Dingers Podcast Network, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's on that's on the Count the Dings podcast network. But you, you once you put woke bros, we're the only woke bros on on the internet. So <laughs> once you once you type that in, you'll be able to find that wherever you wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we appreciate you. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. This was dope, man. No problem. Thank you for your time. All right, later, fellas. All right.